This episode contains references to suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised. At a younger age, high school into college, I, I, I never had a long-term outlook on life. I never had goals. Football wasn't a goal in life. I just planned on playing football, using that as my cover for as long as possible and, and, and committing suicide. I, I never thought that there was any way that family or friends would accept me and love me. And, and I was convinced that you know, my family would be better off with a dead straight son than a, than a living gay one. We're going to go out on the field. We're going to score as many goals as we can. We're going to have fun. Oh, Becchio, well placed. Come on, Jay. Come on, Jay. It has been my pleasure and my honor to represent you all. Having been a standout for Cal in the Pac-12 and going on to play for five seasons in the NFL with the New England Patriots and the Kansas City Chiefs, I was really looking forward to hearing about how Ryan O'Callaghan fell in love with the sport that he gave so much of himself to. As a child, I was never really a fan of football. Okay, scratch that. Because that question doesn't exactly apply in this situation. For this athlete. I never played Pop Warner football, peewee football, uh, but I was around it because my dad, uh, he officiated all different levels of, of football from Pop Warner up, up to up to college. Um, so as a kid on the weekends, I would go out to the field when he was officiating and, you know, I was, I was young. I was, you know, five to 10 years old. So I was just sitting there watching, but I was a big kid, uh, even back then, and, and coaches would coaches would see me and they kind of nudge me and hey, when are you gonna come play? And um, you know, my dad being who he was in the community or who he is in the community, you know, they all knew of me and me being a big kid, so it was really assumed that I was gonna play football. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was never it was never a goal of mine, anything anything of that sort. I guess you could say that football came to Ryan O'Callaghan rather than the other way around. He fell into the game. So high school came along, and uh, you know I, I, I started playing football for the first time. Um, I didn't love it. You know, I really didn't want to play. You know, I also had the ultimatum of play sports or get a job, um, so that makes that easy. And uh, yeah, but once I did start playing, I was good, just naturally, just being where I'm at, not having good competition up here, and also just being big, you know, and, and as the years in high school went on, high school's very clicky, as, you know, being popular is, is important back then, and, and football definitely helped with that, and that made sticking with it easier and, and more attractive, and you know, by my senior year, I was getting attention from colleges, uh, once again, I never planned on playing college football on any level, but I was getting attention. And um, before I even started my senior year, I, I had scholarship offers for Division One. So I just, at that point, I figured I'd, I'd keep playing. A job or sport ultimatum, popularity, the opportunities to go to college for free. These were all good reasons for a teenager to keep on doing something, even if that teenager didn't have some burning passion for it. 
But even still, there was another reason football was compelling for O'Callaghan. The more I played football and, and the atmosphere around it and the stereotypes, I found it to be a great cover for my sexuality. And, and that's the only reason I stuck with it as long as I did and took it as serious as I did because, you know, being, being closeted, I, I was convinced that family, friends would never accept me, but I also relied on everyone's ignorance around football and being masculine where people would think, you know, no one playing at this level of football and, and being good at it could possibly be gay. And I used that to my advantage. So, you know, that that's actually when I actually, if you even want to say I was passionate about football, it was only for what football provided for me, not the game itself. Yeah, football was also a great cover for O'Callaghan's sexuality, something he had pinpointed as being different about himself years before putting on the pads and helmet as a high schooler. I, I first recognized I was, I was different at a young age, before I was a teenager. You know, your friends are starting to have crushes on, on girls and different things like that. And I, that just never happened for me. You know, I, I didn't instantly go, oh, I'm gay. I just thought, okay, maybe I'm a late bloomer. And, and I, I had these conversations in my head going, okay, maybe I'll, maybe something will happen. I'll catch up. But um, as the years went on and you hit puberty and, and you start to have, have different thoughts that, you know, turn into actual desires and attractions and in different ways, you, you quickly realize I am attracted to men and, you know, why? And then you start trying to change it and you suddenly realize you can't change. Um, so at that point, you know, for me, based off the things I, I heard from family and friends about, about the gay community, I, I was convinced I would never be accepted. So... You know, I, I decided I had to dive deep into the closet. I didn't reevaluate my options you know, until I was 29 years old. Um, but yeah, that's really all it was, was just things I heard as a, as a child and continue to hear growing up um, from family and, and, and in the locker room. And, you know, I, I have to say, though, that the older I got, you know, the different levels I moved up with football, the less derogatory things about, you know, gay people you, you would hear in the locker room. It was more just guys talking about girls. And in talking about, like you said, ascending the ranks of the football world, um, getting into college, I'm curious about this because uh, my friends have this theory because I went to a L.A., um, you know, preppy private school and I guess compulsive, you know, heteronormativity. I didn't even think about my sexuality. I had a boyfriend and that was just that. And then I, for college, just went to a liberal arts college, a small liberal arts college to play soccer. And, you know, that's when I started to come to terms with my sexuality and realize that I like girls. And so there's been some theories thrown around within our women's soccer team, which is, you know, very queer that there's some sort of like maybe internal pull towards, you know, a 17 or 18 year old looking at colleges and being like, you know, this hippie granola liberal arts college might be quote unquote good for me in a sense. And so I know you went to Cal and you, you know, you're from NorCal. So maybe that's, it's plain as that. That's why you decided to go there. But you know, it's a, there's a famously liberal environment there, a bit of a hippie school also. 
Um, do you think there was any part of you that was, you know, subconsciously drawn to Cal? And what role do you think being at Cal had on your identity? Uh, yeah, so Cal being the mecca for hippies and, and, and liberalism didn't, didn't have any effect on it. Uh, you know, I was 16 mm-hmm. when I committed to Cal. Um, you know, I was more thinking about being close to home. My friends would come visit and, um, that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, you, you, obviously you make new friends and then you do just fine in college. But, uh, yeah, my, my deciding factors were it being close to home and, and friends coming there. And they were also the first to offer me a scholarship hmm. and I really didn't like the spotlight and being from you know, a smaller area like this, me getting a scholarship offer to a D1 school was a headline and it was in the news and I really didn't like the attention. So I, I thought I thought that committing early would put all that behind me. Um, it didn't. It just made other schools want me more. But, uh, you know, I, I committed early and, and, and I stuck with them. But th- there was nothing, mm-hmm. there was nothing else to it. Mm-hmm. So not a data point for the theory, but uh, being no, no. And honestly, it kind of it kind of put me in the closet more because mm. going around campus, you would see these flyers for the different uh, LGBTQ clubs, and and you know you'd see rainbow flags, and I would consciously not look at these things. I'd be like, oh, if someone sees me looking at it, they might assume I'm interested. Mm. Um, so if anything, it added to you know to my own little mental problem I had going on. Though he wasn't a fan of attention, O'Callaghan wasn't super effective at pushing the spotlight away in college, where he became a key player for the Bears football team. During his career, he was selected to the All-Pac-10 first team twice. In his final season, he was awarded with the Morris Trophy, given annually to the best lineman in the conference. At the time, his head coach, Jeff Tedford, called O'Callaghan perhaps the best offensive lineman he had seen. So it wasn't really a surprise when he was drafted into the NFL, fifth round by the Patriots. A 22-year-old man grappling with his sexuality, about to throw himself into the world of a professional athlete. Yeah, I, I had a lot going on in my mind. Um, you know, when, when you're not able to, to be yourself, it's, it's exhausting because I'm trying to keep up this facade and try to keep track of lies I've told and you know, who I told, who I'm dating and, you know, having to do certain things to make it look like I was going to go meet up with a girl. And, you know, as, as the years went on and I got older and it was more expected of me to be dating a female and and these certain things, it, it all just kind of piled on more and more, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, being 22 and, and, and having a lot of money, you're obviously going to have some fun. Um, It wasn't all miserable whatsoever, but you know, deep down, I was never able to be myself. Um, and any happiness I, I, I did find or have at that time was was short-lived and and really just had to do with money and buying things, which is totally wrong. And also, you know, going on in my mind, I, I've, I always thought that for whatever reason, I was about to get outed. Now, mind you, I never once talk to a guy like I was interested in him that way. I, I, you know, I didn't go on the internet and look at 
at anything gay. I, I always just thought I was about to be outed, but there was nothing that I was doing that that would, you know, throw up red flags. Um, but I, I was still constantly paranoid about it. So I would I would do foolish things with money to as almost distractions in a way. You know, that's kind of what I told myself in my mind. Like I'd rather them talk about how I'm being foolish and buying a fourth car this year than, you know, why isn't he bringing a girl to this or that dinner? Over 15 years of stuffing down and covering and distracting, pursuing an activity that was all-consuming, but that didn't exactly light up his soul. It all led to an incredible amount of inner turmoil for O'Callaghan. At a younger age, high school into college, I, I, I never had a long-term outlook on life. I never had goals. Football wasn't a goal in life. I just planned on playing football, using that as my cover for as long as possible, and, and and committing suicide. I, I never thought that there was any way that family or friends would accept me and love me. And, and I was convinced that you know, my family would be better off with a dead straight son than a, than a living gay one. And obviously I know how foolish and ridiculous that sounds, but back then it was a, there was a lot of stuff going on in my head. But um, so I, I, I Throughout my career, I struggled with injuries, and I was introduced to painkillers. And toward the end of my career, I uh, had quite a few injuries in a row and uh, quickly became addicted to pills. Um, you know, anyone who's taken a painkiller understands that they don't just get rid of pain. They give you this euphoric feeling that makes you you know, not feel like yourself. And at, at, at that point in my life, I absolutely hated myself. So I would do anything not to feel like myself. And so I, I found comfort in a, in a bottle of pills. Um, you know, and also, you know, people understand that, you know, on, on day one, you could take one pill and it'll give you a good feeling. But by the end of that first week, you build up a tolerance, you need more and more. And I quickly turned into a, just a flat out junkie. I was, Manipulating doctors to get more pills, getting them from neighbors, getting them mailed to me, doing whatever I could to, to feed my addiction and and, and really to to, not, to numb my mind. And, uh, you know, I think like most addicts, I thought I was doing a good job of hiding it. Nah, he wasn't. In the NFL for three years and now with the Kansas City Chiefs, a turning point came. You know, our trainer for the Chiefs, um, David Price at the time, he, he passed away since then, unfortunately. But David recognized I was going through something. He, he didn't understand why or what. He, he knew I was taking pills because I was getting a good number of them from the Chiefs. But he discreetly pulled me in his office one morning and suggested I, I go speak to someone. Um, you know, my whole life I was able to manipulate people and, and control a conversation. So I, I just agreed. I thought telling him no would raise more questions. So I agreed to go to go speak to whoever it was. And I thought I'd be able to just get in and out and get it over with. Um, but as soon as I met Dr. Wilson, she had a way of doing a better job of controlling the conversation. And, and, and um, you know, we couldn't have been, you know, further opposites, however you want to put it, than each other. Uh, just our background, where we're from and everything else. But there was a comfort there in chatting with her. And so over the months of talking with her, 
you know, I knew my career was coming to an end just through injuries and the writing was on the wall. And my whole plan was, was to end my life after football. And, um, that had a lot to do. Well, that was why I was abusing the pills more and more, but I found the courage one day just, just to tell her, um, to, to come out to her. And, and that was the first time I ever said the words I'm gay out loud was, was to her. And, you know, I knew she couldn't tell anyone, uh, but even then it, it, it took me a long time of just sitting there crying before I could even get the words out to her. Um, you know, the first thing she did after I told her was stood up and gave me a hug and told me I wasn't the first player to tell her. Um, you know, I, I, I never thought I was alone in it. I just, I didn't know anyone else. I, I couldn't point to anyone else who had successfully come out and, and lived and played in the NFL as an openly gay guy. And um, obviously I still had my own concerns about family, but just telling her was a huge sense of relief. And so I, I told her my plan, um, told her my concerns, my worries, told her all about how many pills I was actually taking. And with her came up with a plan to, to talk to family and tell them what was going on. And, um, you know, she said something that's very, basic and, and makes a lot of sense, but it never crossed my mind until she said it. You know, she told me, well, if you're just going to kill yourself, why don't you find out if you need to, you know, if you think your parents are not going to accept you and you're just going to kill yourself anyways, just find out. Um, so I did, I came up with a plan to, to talk to family and I went back out to California and, and told the people I was most concerned about, um, you know, everyone was fine. You know, I, I, I can't say my dad was jumping up and down about it, but, uh, he wasn't, it wasn't the situation I had pictured in my mind for those 29 years beforehand of chairs getting thrown and everything else. Um, so then I slowly started coming out to, to friends and, and other teammates. And, um, you know, I, I did lose my two best friends through all of it. Um, just different reasons. Um, <laughs> it's in the book. He released a book last year called My Life on the Line, How the NFL Damn Near Killed Me and Ended Up Saving My Life. But uh, things all worked out. Uh, I, you know, I, I went from always thinking about being gay and, and it just driving me insane, literally, to now it doesn't even cross my mind. Hmm. I wouldn't trade it for anything at this point. I, I, <laughs> I uh, well, for one, I couldn't, you know, um, but... I absolutely love life now. It's great yeah. uh, to be able to actually just be yourself. And, um, you know, the relationships that I had before I came out, those relationships I still have now are, are stronger than ever because they can actually see that I'm happy and authentic. And, um, you know, it, it's all worked out great. Now I understand that that's not the case for everyone. You know, I, I talk to people all the time who've been kicked out of their houses and disowned my family for coming out and it's, it's unfortunate you know it's 2020 it's it's disgusting um but it still happens so you know i i do know how lucky i am and, and privileged i am to be in the situation i am and that's a big part of why i'm trying to give back now with the things i do yeah and i i know you set up the foundation and we'll get to that but even just yeah the power of telling your story and the ripple effect and people 
yeah, just the more familiarity that they have with it. There's all these studies on when you, you know, when you know a queer person, what that effect that has on you. So yeah, this is really powerful. I feel like, and I feel really grateful to be able to use, you know, the, the small platform that I have to, to share this as well. Yeah, we can all do something and you're doing your part. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do what I can with even just speaking out, you know, me just coming out publicly led to a lot of other players, current and, and former to come out to me and, and tell me their stories and what the obstacles they see in front of them of why they haven't come out. You know, I was able to, like you said, start the charity and then give back to other LGBTQ athletes. What we really need is some allies to, you know, straight people that come out and, and stand up for, for, equality across the board, especially with everything going on these days. This June marks three years since O'Callaghan came out publicly, making him one of only a small group of former NFL players to do so. So I, I came out to family and close friends in 2012 when I retired from the NFL. Um, you know, I had a lot of living and learning to do before I was in a position to come out publicly. So in 2017, I, I reached out to Sid, the co-founder of Outsports, and and decided to come out publicly with an article through them, which ended up getting shared by, by everyone. Um, obviously, I, I knew it would make news just anytime a NFL player comes out as you know, gay or bi or what have you, it, it makes news. But it took off more than I even thought it would. Um, but that's a good thing, you know, and all these different things I do reach, reach people at that, that haven't heard it before, and that's why I continue to do it. All these different things he does includes his work through the Ryan O'Callaghan Foundation he has set up. Uh, so I originally started the foundation to give scholarships and support to uh, LGBTQ student athletes. You know, for the most part, what I've what I've done is outreach, uh, speaking to different schools. Um, you know, uh, universities can obviously make donations and and cover the cost of travel and whatnot to, to go speak to them. And then for the most part, I've been using the profits, if you want to call it profits, from those to go speak to other schools that that can't make a donation to have me out. Um, you know, the long-term goal would be to give some scholarships, you know, but at this point, uh, with with the limited amount of money um, I'm able to raise, it, it's I think it's much more beneficial to actually go speak to a, a big number of people than financially help one or two um you know with everything going on with COVID-19 I I thought it'd be a good idea to open up the charity to financially help uh some student athletes who needed it just being kicked out of their dorms and not having family support and not having the meals they're used to um so I've, I've been able to help some people uh recently through that so yeah, I, I I spend most of my time now going around speaking at corporations and schools, and like I mentioned earlier, I, I wrote a book, um, and I'm happy to say that all of my profits from the book go directly to the charity as well. Um, and it's not one of those charities either that 80% of the money goes to, you know, the board members. No one part, no one with the charity, me, no one on the board, anyone gets a single dollar from it. So any money that goes in goes right back out to the community. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'd love to be able to keep it that way. Yeah, it's, it's so amazing, and I want to go back to that point. You know, yeah, people aren't, aren't talking about this, the effect of COVID-19 on students that you know, 
you know, we've talked again, the, the students that rely on meals and housing and those things. But um, yeah, definitely this, this idea of, you know, especially college students having to return to homes or cities where it's not queer friendly and, you know, they might be in danger. And yeah, just thinking about this pandemic through an LGBTQ lens. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, for, for a lot of students, straight or, or, or part of the community, home is not a safe place. Um, you know, I, I won't use a name, but, but one of the one of the girls I was able to help through the COVID, you know, she came out to her family and, and they no longer support her financially or in any other way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and a, a big part of receiving uh, loans, grants, everything else with college is you still have to report your family's income. Whether they support you, they disown you or not, they want your family's income, and that and that dictates for a large part of, of what kind of financial support you get. Um, and there's a lot of people in, in the LGBTQ community who don't have their family's financial support, but you still have to report their income, and, and so you're kind of damned either way. So there is a huge gap there to be filled, um, you know, and that's why I'm trying to, to help do my part in filling it. Speaking at schools, writing his book, financially supporting LGBTQ student-athletes, talking to me on this podcast, living by example as his authentic self. O'Callaghan has become a kind of queer athlete ambassador, doing all he can to make the spaces LGBTQ athletes move in more supportive, more liberating. And whether he's consciously asked for it or not, O'Callaghan has become a go-to source in shedding light on the seemingly diametrically opposed ideas of gay athlete and hyper-masculine sporting culture. O'Callaghan was recently featured in the 2020 Netflix limited series, Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez, where he spoke about one of the, one of the uh, issues the NFL star turned convicted killer likely was dealing with. Yeah, I didn't want it to seem like I was outing him because mm-hmm. I don't know if he's gay or bi or whatever the hell he is. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I wanted to do was come off like I was outing the guy. Right, and, of course. Um, well, I think it was tasteful, and I think that, yes, you kind of, you know, just gave a, a, a context for, for these things in this in this sport. Yeah, yeah. yeah if he was gay, <laughs> right. <laughs> it made things more complicated. Yeah, now his high school teammate, Mm, (laughs) Ryan O'Callaghan didn't have a plan for life after sport. That's because he didn't plan to be alive after sport. And so, I don't know, call me cheesy, but I think there's something beautiful in the fact that he's able to give advice for those looking down the road after retirement. Don't wait till it's over to start planning. You gotta gotta realize that you only have X amount of time in, in the sport and, and sooner than later, you're, you're going to be setting your own schedule and, and having to play grown up. So, uh, it's never, it's never too early to start planning. Um, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time and just the earlier you do it, the better prepared you'll be and never be afraid to, to ask for help and, and use your network to set yourself up for, for when you're done playing sports. You know, it's specifically college athletes. There's a lot of alumni out there that that know how hard athletes work and, and what they bring to the table in a, in a company and what leaders they are. So 
don't be afraid to reach out to alumni and and uh, be proud of your accomplishments on the on the field or the court because they will help you in the long run. There is a long run. As his book title says, football simultaneously nearly killed him and saved him. It speaks to the complicated power this activity, this game that becomes our world, possesses. It's a power established via the people sport brings in our circle, the messages conveyed by those people in a greater culture, the paths to opportunities sport paves, the platform it builds for its athletes. Knowing the influence, the potency sport holds, will you retire and continue walking on to the next world, eyes not looking back, merely a product spit out by a powerful sport? Or will you hang up your jersey, stop, turn, and look back to see what you can do to change the system you emerged from? Thank you to Ryan O'Callaghan for coming onto the podcast. To learn more about his foundation, check out rofdn.org. And as always, thank you for listening. Hope to see you next time.